Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, well, thank you for tuning in. This is our first installment of our Courageous Conversation series. And the goal of Courageous Conversations is to build a bridge um, for those um, up and coming or those actually any leading black um, thinker um, to build a bridge from those trained in traditional evangelical seminaries and ones that have been trained in more mainline seminaries. Um, so that's what Courageous Conversations is all about. And today we have Pastor Cameron Triggs. What's up, Cam? What's up, Lisa? How you doing? <laughs> What's up? I'm good. How are you? And we yeah, have yeah. Uh, Pastor Willie Francois. Am I pronouncing your last name right? That's exactly correct. Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> good. How are you? Yes. So, uh, Cam, I'm going to let you give a little bit of background about yourself for the audience. Awesome. Uh, as Lisa already mentioned, my name's Cameron Triggs. I serve as a youth pastor at Shiloh Church uh, here in Jacksonville. Uh, really love uh, serving students in next generation ministry. Um, I'm married to the beautiful Tamara Triggs. I have a baby boy who's nine months old. And so as you can see, I'm balancing a lot. He is a ball of energy and um, I'm enjoying being a new father. Um, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, spent some time in Orlando where I went to University University of Central Florida. I did religious studies and then I went to Reform Theological Seminary and did uh, theological studies and uh, serving here, loving the city of Jacksonville and I'm, I'm just uh, grateful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. And uh, Pastor Francois, let um, our listeners know a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, so I am originally from Galveston, Texas, uh, and I have uh, spent some time in, in Houston, uh, one of my favorite American cities. Uh, I currently uh, serve as the uh, senior pastor elect of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey. Uh, it's probably about six minutes from Atlantic City, an hour from uh, Philadelphia. I just relocated here about uh, I guess three weeks ago uh, from New York City where I was serving uh, on, on staff uh, there, uh, on the staff there in Harlem. Uh, I uh, went, did undergrad at Morehouse College uh, where I studied uh, religion and history. Uh, then I got an MDiv from Harvard Divinity School and I am deeply committed. One of my uh, my pastoral activism really takes uh, center, really centers around uh, economic and racial justice uh, and uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, so one of the things that really grounds and animates my ministry is how do we uh, engage uh, the formerly incarcerated and building theological and ecclesiological models uh, for for that type of work. Awesome. Um, so today we want to talk about uh, black liberation theology. Um, I thought this was a great uh, topic to start our series off with. And so we're going to let um, you guys talk talk about, in your estimation, um, in your analysis, what 
what is black liberation theology? Um, w Willie, would you like to go first? Uh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, so black liberation theology, I mean, as a, as a category, uh, sometimes I like to um, problematize, you know, the idea of, of a single black uh, liberation theology. It's really much more broad uh, than that, particularly as it has developed since, uh, since uh, Dr. Cohn uh, in, in the late 60s, early 70s. It's really um, morphed into various ways, theolo a, a theological discourses that engage the experiences of black people in America uh, that really take seriously the suffering and prioritizes the, the liberation of, of black bodies, uh, and really all uh, black bodies. And what Black liberation theology has really served as, as as a corrective to the sort of dominant academic mainline uh, theology that tries to act as if it is culturally and socially disinterested. Uh, but what we've come to find out, particularly from James Cone, uh, as he kicks off this project, is that all theology is really culturally and contextually invested. And so black liberation theology uh, really prioritizes and, and and, and uses the black experience or black experiences uh, in America to feed and to do uh, theology, and liberation is at its core. And Campbell, what would you, your what are your thoughts as it relates to what is your analysis of black liberation theology? Yeah, I think our brother gives a, a great analysis of it, a very great analysis. Um, there's a uh, not one black liberation theology. I would say there's black liberation theologies. Uh, you talk about uh, James Cone and his development, and you have some of his successors, such as Dwight Hopkins, who um, really continues to develop that tradition of talking about liberation, talking about utilizing the black tradition, um, utilizing the black experiences, uh, utilizing slave songs and blues and jazz uh, to give theological insight into the human experience. Um, and so uh, it's it's something that you can't define as uh, easy. Um, it, it's it's a it's a community that's uh, really utilizing these tools, utilizing these hermeneutics of uh, taking the black experience, taking the ideas of suffering and injustice, and uh, what the God of the Bible would have uh, to say about those issues. And so, in black liberation theology, I think one of the mistakes many people make is to really categorize it as if it was a uh, monolithic movement or categorize it uh, just according to James Cone and not really engraft uh, in, in, in a lot of these other great contributors um, from the feminist movement. The people, uh, you know, Dolores Williams uh, have uh, contributed to um, the black liberation uh, theology and so and you can watch the news and you would think that it's just one black liberation theology and that's actually not the case. There are people who may be considered quote-unquote liberal in black liberation theology. There may be people who are quote-unquote conservative in black liberation theology. But if I were to say that what would be the consensus, what would be the heartbeat, it would be what our, our brother has already articulated. It's liberation. It's utilizing the black experience and it's, it's talking about suffering and injustice and uh, how the God of the Bible sides with the oppressed. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to add uh, to, to, to what Cam said and to what I said earlier is that, I mean, what, what 
Cone helps to kick off, and which by no means has a monopoly on anymore. But what Cone helps to 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 kick off is really thinking about another resource for doing theology, uh, because. He, he, would, he would say, and, and many would probably agree, that academic theology, white theology, would suggest that um, theology is done by uh, resourcing tradition, resourcing uh, scripture, uh, and resourcing doctrine. Right, and then Cone doesn't discard those things. Cone comes in and wants to inject the reality, or not really inject, but he sacralizes uh, black experiences in that way. Particularly, uh, he has a he has a bent towards uh, slavery and a bent and a bend towards Jim Crow, uh, but he, he uses those experiences, as Pastor Cam said, that we can now think about doing theology not only from these so-called sacred sources, but we can now do theology by thinking about, well, how do black people understand the world, uh, and how do they give us this window into how they understand the world uh, by... Uh, by their music, uh, by their poetry, uh, by their by their uh, the, the arts, and so I, what what a great contribution that Black theology gives. Uh, and I'm not saying that this is the only liberation tradition that does this, uh, but it allows for other sources of theology to add to the canon. So it's not just the Bible that we use to think about God. It's not simply the traditions of the church that we use to think about God. It's not simply the doctrines that we've inherited uh, from uh, the the African fathers of the church or from uh, the European uh, re uh, re reformists of the church. But now we can start thinking about how grandma adds to theology and how uh, Mimi and Papa adds to theology. And Cone really makes that space and and injects it uh, into the academic conversation. Would you like to add anything to that, Cam? No, I wouldn't. I, I would. Uh, I wouldn't add anything to that. I think that's a uh, that is the brilliance of, the, of this tradition. Um, that it 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 challenges the idea that um, uh, this theology of privilege. Which you, I, I think would make it synonymous with uh, this theology of predominantly white uh, evangelicals or white Protestants. Uh, it challenges the monopoly on uh, that theology, and that the African American experience and that the African American hermeneutics has something to contribute to that canon. Talking about um, to use technical terminology, talking about natural revelation, talking about an existential uh, experience that contributes to our understanding of who we are, being created in the image of God, which is something that really has been missing to talk about the oppressed, that I am the image of God, um, that I am created by the Redeemer, and He loves me. Um, and to really challenge those notions that there is a very unique contribution when you look at the Bible and how it was written and you look at all the socioeconomic periods that the Bible was written, um, we have a lot to contribute and a lot um, of things that we actually um, connect with, with the Bible writers and with the time periods that was written. And so um, I agree. I totally agree. And that's one of the contributions that people really to need to delve into regardless of what side you're on, right? Because I know a lot of times we characterize one another and sometimes we build up straw men of one another. But regardless of what side you're on, that is a contribution um, and that is a, a challenge that we all need to really check ourselves. We all approach the text with blind spots. 
we all approach the text with our particular prejudices, yeah. and um, <clears throat> that is a, a great, great, great tool for us to utilize is that when we do interpret the Bible, we do have experience, we do have cultural uh, ramifications that we're bleeding onto the text, and so I think all these things are great um, to make us not, and it doesn't push the Bible to the side. I think it makes us take the Bible more seriously. It makes us take Scripture more seriously. And so those are the contributions, I think, regardless of where you fall um, theologically, that is something that you really need to be aware of uh, when we're approaching the Bible and we're talking about the God of the Bible. Yeah, like like more important, like uh, more important than what Cone actually produces, and like the content of Cone's theology is like the method with which he engages uh, his project and pushes uh, theology to go, uh, because of because it's easy for us to believe that we come to the Bible and we come to our, our understanding and notions of God with like cultural disinterest. And not to and to use a, a, a technical term, I think one that that Cone uses often in God of the Oppressed is that uh, we all have this axiological grid, like we all have values that have been imposed on us, that have shaped us, that we've adopted. Some are conscious, some are unconscious, and we approach scripture, and we approach tradition, and we approach doctrine uh, with this cultural baggage to the extent that that theology is. To large in, in a to a large degree a cultural production and what Cone helps us to do is really unmask and reveal how theology in America liberal I mean progressive or conservative is really a white cultural production that is steeped in a type of privilege that does not value uh, the 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 suffering and not only value I mean because value may be the wrong word to use here but does not seek and does not engage and does not try to interpret and contest <clears throat> the suffering of, of those who are farthest down uh, in, in this country. And I think that leads us to our next, um, our next crucial question. Uh, what can black liberation teach the white evangelical church in America? I think you, got, you guys touched on it um, with your with what you just said, but I think uh, um, more can be said on that. I love my brother Willie really take the lead on it. Uh, so, so what I think is important, right? Like, so we talked about how I, this we we approach the text with with hermeneutical baggage. We we approach the text with uh with and we read scripture and we do theology from a particular. Uh, axiological grid, like we have particular values that really filter our thinking, and and our our, our theology is filtered uh, through those things. And one thing that white the that that black theology can teach white theology, uh, particularly white evangelical theology, is that it is culturally interested, and it is a production of its of of privilege of of its social location uh, in this country, and that in many ways that black theology is, is teaching white theology how to give up its privilege, uh, how to contest uh, its own embedded and, un and embedded, uh, spoken and unspoken supremacy in order for it to see black life 
as valuable and to see black life as sacred. Uh, and so to only think about Jesus in terms of Jesus' spiritual project to save souls, to get people to heaven, misses the reality uh, of, of black life in America. Because if my only goal is to get to heaven, and my only goal is to be saved, and to be saved with the big ass means that God only cares about my soul and not my body, then there is no mandate on people with power to care for those who don't have power because your reward is laid up for you in heaven so don't worry about how how your life is now and what black theology teaches is that you have to have an existential commitment to life and not simply uh, an eschatological, not simply uh, a heavenward uh, engagement with human life. Now, and, and I say that and I'm also very clear that that the project of white the of, of black theology is not against white people as much as it is against a logic of whiteness that uh, to use Cornel West a little bit, that suffocates the very idea of black beauty, of black creativity, of black freedom, of black uh, progress, right? And so black theology is not contesting people, but is contesting a logic that inhabits uh, particular bodies, that also inhabits black bodies, that is not able, that black bodies that, that don't value uh, black beauty, black creativity, black liberation, black freedom, black love. And so it's black... Black theology works not only to correct people, right? Because I mean that's a part of it, but really trying to get at a root, which is a logic that is at work uh, underneath the consciousness, and a logic that is that is at work uh, within theology that invisibles a particular set of people by privileging a particular set of people. And what we do know is that white evangelical theology is what slavery was baptized in. And so when we talk about the legacy of slavery and oppression in this country, you can always find white evangelical theology, uh, maybe not as it exists today, but definitely its predecessors, at the core of it legitimating and baptizing uh, forms of oppression as God's will. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's that's phenomenal. I think that's exactly what um, black liberation and the, the hermeneutics that it brings to the table challenges uh, the privilege that is often found in white evangelical circles. Um, I think it really demonstrates the value of black intellectualism, black imagination, black contributions, black experience. Um, and it, it, it really, uh, I would say, um, this type of hermeneutic and this type of uh, teaching can liberate white evangelicals from their privilege if they're willing to uh, submit and understanding that there are things that we can bring to the table um, that our brothers and sisters aren't addressing because of the life experiences that they are, are a part of. There are certain things that I bring to the table um, as a, a multi-ethnic person that other people won't experience, that other people won't know what it's like. And what does that mean for God to speak to me in my experience as, as a half black and a Native American and German is, is a different existential experience, but God is willing to speak to that. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's just realizing that you know, this, this theology of uh, our hermeneutics, finding value 
our hermeneutics found being found as valid, um, and the way that we do theology may not necessarily be the systematic approach that other people may have, um, but it's still uh, a contribution to the product of theology. Um, when we think about um, liberation theology in the way that um, slave narratives are utilized, or the way that um, Negro spirituals are utilized, and we think the way that black sermons are utilized as our, our canon of theology, that is a, a great and beautiful thing, and it, uh, to use Jeremiah right, um, it's different, but it's not deficient. Um, and I think that's something that the white evangelical church, and not even just the white evangelical church, I think um, the church as a whole, the body of Christ, um, needs to be able to utilize this and understand that we're different, but we're not deficient, um, and we're really rally, rallying around um, the gospel. And I think what uh, Brother Willie really articulates well is that God saved us, but he kept us here, right? We just didn't get zapped up to heaven once we said the sinner's prayer. We have a commitment to spread the gospel to one another, and then we have a commitment to love one another as Christ has loved the church. And so even what Brother Willie said in his introduction, right, um, talking about doing ministry to those who are formerly incarcerated, um, I can't make a broad analysis of every evangelical church or every white Protestant church, but I can bet you that is a ministry or that is a philosophical value that may not be found in the budget and ministry programs of a lot of churches in America, but it is this liberation, it is this liberation hermeneutic that produces that in his uh, philosophy of ministry, and he's fleshing that out. And I think it's only when we utilize these principles of understanding that we have a lot to contribute uh, of who God created us to be, and when we watch that flesh out, um, we don't have to necessarily utilize programs that aren't indigenous to the communities that we're in. Amen. Amen. You got something to add, Willie? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think uh, Brother Cam brings a very strong point in thinking about. I mean, thinking ecclesiologically uh, that can really challenge most of us is that how church budgets are really theological documents, right? Mm -hmm. What a church values and how a church. Uh, programs uh, is usually reflected in how a church spends its resources, how a church spends its money. And so I guess the true measure of a church of liberation or a prophetic ministry is where are its dollars going and not necessarily what is being preached from from, from its pulpits. Uh, and, and I think that can happen in, in both uh, white contexts and in both uh, in both uh, and, and in white context, in the black context, and brown context, uh, that that this type of work, this prophetic work, uh, is not like black people. And this this can get people in trouble. Like black people don't have a monopoly on prophetic ministry, on liberation ministry. Uh, and I think the more we understood that uh, on both sides, I think the better we could look like uh, that that movement vision that Jesus was creating uh, in Palestine, all, uh, you know, almost two thousand years ago. It's just a a ministry that's radically committed to to love, radically committed to to the development and the liberation of human persons, uh, and that has to be reflected in 
in the budgets. It has to be reflected in how the dollars are spent. Uh, but I, and I also wanted to add something about how uh, thinking again about how black what black theology has to say to 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 certain strands, but what black theologies has to say to to uh, white evangelical theologies because those are different as as well uh, because there's some progressive evangelicals and there's some 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 conservative uh, evangelicals and and I guess the way I've been using evangelical uh, is not as much a theological stance uh, because to, to to a great extent we're all evangelical. Uh, many of us, not all, many of us are evangelical to the extent that we are going out spreading a, a word of liberation, a word uh, that there is that, that love and freedom and salvation uh, is available to you. And we open the doors of the church, right? Like these are evangelical moments. Like we have revivals. These are evangelical moments. So I've been thinking about evangelical as as more as a uh, political ideology, uh, that one that is deeply entrenched in the political system talking about his dollars, whose dollars are connected to the, the maintenance and the, the progression of ex economic exploitation uh, in this country, of political silencing uh, in this country. And so when I'm talking about, um, so when we talk about white evangelicals, it's more than it is a theological tradition. It is also a political ideology that is at work uh, in this country that, that, produces the need for a Black Lives Matter movement. So, so I, I did want to make that distinction. And what black theology does for that political ideology uh, that, is, that often masquerades as a, a, a authentic theological tradition is that it forces it to come to terms with America. Like black theology, James Cone, uh, Dolores Williams, Jacqueline Grant, uh, like the, these, these, these four parents of, of, of black liberation theologies forced us and forced America to see itself, to look in the mirror and to wake up. Uh, from being this sleeping beauty that is able to, as uh, as uh, James Baldwin would say, to buy into a type of naivete of its own innocence, because slavery happened in this country, and white theology and white people and white institutions and America has to come to terms with the fact that this country was built on the forced labor and the economic exploitation of black brown and native bodies and black theology calls America to task it calls whiteness to task about its legacy of terrorism of domestic terrorism because it is it is it is intellectually inconsistent and morally dishonest to talk about ISIS and not talk about the, the ramifications and the living realities of KKK and the white supremacy in this country because America does a great job of terrorism and, and trying to act like it's not. America does a great job of state-sponsored violence against black, brown, poor bodies and that is a type of terrorism that it does not take seriously. And what I like about womanism, and what I, particularly womanism, is that it does not allow America to get away with how it underpays black women, of how it over-incarcerates black communities, of how it it is built on a type of white capitalist patriarchy uh, that dehumanizes and suffocates uh, the potential and the beauty of black people 
particularly black women in this country. I think that's great. And um, my, my charge is to really get, um, I'm from a reformed tradition, you know, so a lot of my, my brothers and sisters um, who are kind of agreeing with me theologically uh, would consider themselves reformed um, or conservative. And um, But here's the thing, everything you said, Willie, everything you said was biblical. Everything you said was biblical. Everything that you said is that you just said was right, and it was just. And I feel like many brothers on the other side of the conservative circles, right, vilify uh, a Dolores Williams or a James Cone because they disagree with them, and a lot of theology that I would say is predominantly um, normative. And when I say normative means dealing with um, head doctrine, right? But there is phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal overlay in what we're talking about, the ethics and how we act and how we treat one another. And I don't want to – I would say that many times we, we kind of um, create this dichotomy between the normative and the ethical when in, in truth God wants us to love him with our – heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And so for me, um, and, and I just want to affirm these different things that you're saying because they're true, and it's something that we need to be committed to. We need to be committed to justice. And here's why I believe that it's important that this is a, a conversation and not a debate. Because when we cast stones to our, our brothers and sisters um, who we may disagree with, who are African American, and a lot of times there's in in there's fighting between us as blacks, um, as uh, black pastors, black clergy, and a lot of times we we cast down these uh, these uh, prophetic voices, <laughs> and I would say that we're contributing to the narrative of white privilege when we do that, when we kind of snicker and talk about. Oh yeah, that's just heretical garbage. Oh yeah, that's just that. But no, there's something powerful, and there's something that is being said that is so right, that's so biblical, and so robust. Um, and and to think that we just because we have disagreements, we become so divisive and vicious towards one another. When the actuality, we agree a lot on what we are called to do as Christians, and we have to be so careful uh, for those of us who may find ourselves on different sides of the pole, um, we need to be ecumenical because even, I'm just talking between us as brother and brother, both black, we contribute to that white privilege narrative when we begin to tear one another down. And what we find is that people on the other sides are cheering and clapping uh, while, we're, while we're divided. And, I, I, man, I want to affirm what you're saying in, in terms of talking about this narrative of, of, of uh, black lives mattering, I'm talking about this narrative of domestic violence, and to me, I believe that I, I would I would stamp that as that is evangelical belief to know that we're fighting for justice, we're fighting for those who are cast out, who are forgotten to have a voice. We're giving a voice to the vo voiceless, um, doing ministry, uh, being fathers to the fatherless. That 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 is. That is a robust biblical theology. It's not just about 
your head. It's about your head. It's about your heart, and it's about your hands. And um, I, 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 I really uh, uh, want to endorse that. But brother Willie, I, I want to ask you a question, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, what is your analysis in terms of um, seeing kind of quote unquote prosperity preachers um, involved? Or I guess kind of utilizing the Black Lives platform. What would you? What would be your your take on this? Because to me, I see uh, I see I see those two completely different. Um, preaching a prosperity gospel, and then we're talking about social justice and caring for the poor, and utilizing, as you said, our budgets as theological documents. Um, what w what would be your analysis of that? Yeah, man, I think that it is. Well, one, it is we're we are apparently seeing a, and, and I hope I'm right about this, and I, I could be I could be naive about this, is that we're apparently seeing the the revealing of the impotence and the anemia of prosperity theology, mm. and to some extent, I think that some of some of our some of the I I, I don't have anyone particular in mind, mm. uh, but I'm, I'm I'm sure that this happens. Mm. Uh, is that a lot of the prosperity the uh, the prosperity theology preachers, pastors, televangelists mm -hmm. uh, may be in this in this pursuit to reinvent themselves mm -hmm. uh, because the the gospel, the fake gospel, the impotent gospel, uh, the counterfeit gospel that they sold uh, is no longer bringing in the dividends uh, that it once did. And so there's this, this search for community. There's this opportunity they may see to recreate themselves uh, uh, in, 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 this, in, in this way, through this movement, uh, by talking about uh, economic, economic advancement. Uh, right, and they, they there's this confusion uh, between uh, prosperity theology and economic development and economic justice, and I think that it is a it is a it is a gross misinterpretation to believe that there's really intersectionality between prosperity theology as it has been preached and movements of economic development and movements of economic justice. So I think that maybe there's this attempt to recreate oneself and also this gross misinterpretation that there's really some overlap between how prosperity theology has been preached and real authentic movements for economic justice and economic development. And it's it's and in a movement like Black Lives uh, that is decentralized, and I'm all for decentralized leadership in strong ways, but I believe that although there is decentralized leadership, there needs to be centralization of message, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite hearing a centralization of message, and I, you know, and I support, and I, I'm for what uh, Black Lives Matter has been has been about, but there is a way for this decentralization of leadership and decentralization of message for to allow for the co-opting by certain persons who don't really have the movement at heart but are really interested in in profile building or career reclamation because and, and let me just say the problem my problem with prosperity theology uh, is is deeply connected to the fact that it it creates space for economic exploitation 
and economic injustice. And not only on behalf of the church, because that's also happening, because they're preying on the insecurities and preying on the aspirations of poor people to be rich. And, and it creates a type of consumerist mentality uh, through religion. Uh, uh, Otis Moss III would say that much of Christianity that he sees today is capitalism in drag, right? That, that's that's a, uh, an Otis Moss uh, III uh, uh, expression. And, 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 and it's true because what happens is if you tell someone that the reason why they are poor is because they don't have enough faith and if they do increase their faith and increase their faith by giving what they have, what the little that they do have, then they will be able to achieve wealth and they will be able to achieve uh, material prosperity and non-material prosperity as they later come to say that prosperity is not simply about money but it's also about peace, also about love, also about hope, like all those things. That's like the later iteration of prosperity theology. But the problem at the core is, is if you tell someone the reason why they're poor is because they don't have enough faith, it blinds them and it blinds us to the reality that most people in this country are poor because there are policies at place that lock people in places of poverty and lock people in ghettos. That that policy actually creates and maintains and sustains poverty uh, in this country. Low failing schools uh, that that. And which is connected to poverty, that's a policy issue. Uh, the lack of jobs in this country, a policy issue. Uh, 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 the minimum wage being $9 an hour in cities like New York City, uh, that's a policy issue. And so when you're telling people that their economic predicament is connected to their faith, it blinds us to the reality that there are economic policies and political political uh, maneuvering happening that actually creates this. And so I, that's my deepest issue with what prosperity theology is about. But we have to be very, very, we have to be, we have to be vigilant and we have to always be ready to contest these prosperity theologians who are coming in and trying to co-op real movements of economic advancement, economic uh, development, and economic justice. That's good. That's good. Do you have anything to add to that, Cam? No, I don't. No, I just try, I just tried to uh, pitch a fastball over the plate. <laughs> <laughs> I think if if you can, you the quickest way to you uh, unite uh, conservative evangelicals and black liberationists is to uh, talk about the prosperity gospel. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fact that it's a common of us, of us all, of those of us who are trying to do the authentic Jesus work, right? Yeah, That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the fastest way. So if you ever have it, a black liberationist in the room and they're arguing, just throw uh, the prosperity gospel in and they will quickly join forces. <laughs> Um, so, I want to, um, Willie, did you have any questions for Cam before I ask my next question? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh. Okay. Um, what reservations, doubts, or disagreements do you have um, with black liberation theology as articulated by James Cone or other prominent proponents? And I'll start with you, Cam. Um, reservations or doubts, I guess, um, 
it would really be depending on the author, and it would be depending on the work. I think every work is unique. Um, I wouldn't try to um, really normalize one particular um, movement in that way about reservations that I would have. I know in reading, um, particularly James Cone, that I would have disagreements in terms of where I may stand on Christology. I think his Christology is important in terms of talking about Jesus Christ, um, really identifying with the oppressed um, African-American experience. Um, I know I may have uh, disagreements in maybe his view of Scripture. Um, I, I believe that we would have disagreements there, but I could, I would, I would, what I really want to disregard is people making wholesale disagreements and then trying to throw out um, the movement as a whole. And I'm speaking for um, a conservative evangelical standpoint as many times as what I see is people have um, disagreements on these particular focuses and then they really throw out all the great and beautiful things that they are saying um, and I'm just returning back to all the things that Willie has said that we as a, a, a body of believers need to say yes and amen to and um, I just encourage people to read these works for yourself. Um, read it with the Bible in mind. Read it with your tradition in mind. Talk to your pastor who is serving you. Talk to um, somebody uh, who can give you godly counsel and uh, read these and apply all these great uh, principles that are found. And if you find yourself in disagreements, um, the old saying says, eat the meat and spit out the bones. But um, there is a lot of meat in this material that we need to uh, utilize as a church. And I would say to evangelical academic institutions, um, they are doing a disservice to minority students by not exposing them to these works. Um, I believe that if you're not exposing your students to these works by um, these particular authors, they will be uh, malnourished for the work that they're called to go forth and do. And so um, I think it's important for us not to uh, really generalize uh, this movement, not to generalize um, these uh, theological contributions. Um, and then I just encourage people to read them. Uh, and then uh, academic institutions as well. Those, those are my three, my, my, my three main points there. Um, and so um, my reservations would be for people to also um, take this uh, movement for the sake of popularity. Um, I think it's a popular, popular thing to talk about Black Lives Matter um, and a popular, popular thing to talk about because media and news is giving a lot of attention to it. And this is not a, a cultural trend. This is a reality that we need to be committed for the long run. And so my reservation is um, whenever this term is thrown out, people grab onto it and think it's the next hot best thing, and they're really not committed to justice in the long run. They're not committed to uh, seeing systemic injustice being overthrown. They're not really committed to seeing the church um, loving those who are the, the least of these. Um, and so my, my reservation is right now it's very popular to talk about these things, but what are we going to do when it's no longer popular? Are we still going to be committed to uh, fulfilling the, the, the call of the great commandment and the great commission? Um, and so that's one of my reservations about 
so many um, brothers talking about it. I think it's great because now it's giving it a platform, but now I just want it to be a, uh, a conversation piece that is embedded in our, our rhythms instead of just being embedded in our uh, social media news feed. Amen. Yeah, I would, I would agree with uh, Brother Cam that the, I mean, black theologies are so um, multifarious. It's, it's so diverse that uh, I'm bound to have, bound to have different uh, points of contestation, different points of disagreement uh, with any given author uh, because, I mean, again, it's not homogenous. It's not a, a, a single thing. Um, so I I, th I think that's that's important. But one of the issues that I, that I have with 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 some some strands of Black liberation uh, theology, which is which in some ways has been demonstrated today uh, through 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 our conversation that you know uh, you know I'm 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 a black man uh, you know cisgender uh, heterosexual and I have I have certain blind spots. Uh, for doing theology fully, right? And so there are liberation theologians who would hear our conversation today, Cam, and say uh, that there, there's, there's so much missing, uh, mm -hmm. that there are many points that we did not say. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, that's, and, and I think that, that represents some of, of, of what's, what's wrong with, black, with some black theology, is that it's easy to get locked in your understanding of liberation and your project of liberation that you miss a commitment to sort of pan liberation or mm. pan justice mm -hmm. or pan freedom mm. uh, and and I mean literally this is what this is why we have black liberation theologies is because James Cone started it and James Cone has some moral blind spots they were like he couldn't see women uh, uh, he couldn't figure women's lives, black women's lives, as theological activity the way they wanted him to. So Dolores Williams and Jacqueline Grant had, had and, and others had to push back on him at that. And 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 I say that because I know that in these conversations, uh, that my androcentrism and my patriarchy, that truly that I try to contest, uh, my head, uh, my. Uh, my heteronormativity, right? That I try to contest, right? I know that these things are are at play, and I think that 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 is both a challenge and a and a, and a growth area uh, for doing uh, theology. That when we have these conversations, or that in the in the sphere of doing liberation theologies, you have to make space for everybody, uh, and we. Black theology does not always some some strands of black theology does not always do that well, and I've come to really really deeply appreciate uh, the work of Monica Coleman. I think Monica Coleman may be my favorite uh, theologian right now, a womanist theologian. Uh, she's she's definitely my, one of my favorite theologians, uh, but I do privilege her as one of my my favorite womanist uh, theologians. Uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, like I, I love reading Kelly Brown Douglas uh, because of how she challenges me both to think about how white supremacy is at play, but also causes me to challenge my, my patriarchy, challenge my, my androcentrism. Uh, and I think those things are, so I think those things are important when doing uh, liberation theology, when, when thinking about what does it mean to liberate black bodies, uh, is that you cannot stop at what James Cone gave us in black 
power of black theology. You cannot stop at what we get in God of the Oppressed, but you got to move into these other texts that broaden the community that, of the oppressed, that broadens what it means uh, to fight for for liberation, to fight for justice. And so, so thinking about black liberation theology is you have to be able to contest, well, what is blackness? And blackness is not simply skin color, as Cone would say. He would say it's a quality of experience. It's a qualitative uh, experience that is had in this country that is connected to suffering. Well, are there ways, and so one issue I would have, are there ways of talking about blackness that does not center around suffering? Right? And maybe there isn't, because the, the project of black liberation theology is about liberation from oppression. So maybe there is no way in the, in the context of black liberation theology of talking about and narrating blackness that's not connected to suffering. Maybe there isn't. But when we talk about blackness, it has to make space for, for all black lives. It has to make space for all black bodies, uh, trans bodies, trans, uh, uh, trans bodies, uh, women's bodies, uh, heterosexual bodies, male bodies, right? We have to make space for all of these if we want to do theology, particularly as an intellectual project, but also as a social project, as a social project, and for many people as a spiritual project, that we don't want to take away from them the communities that, that are deeply spiritual, that are built around uh, identities that are not necessarily accepted in dominant church traditions and church contexts and faith communities. But these, but all people deserve liberation, justice, freedom. Uh, and so that, that would be, I guess, some of my uh, convoluted way of talking about how I disagree with black liberation theology and how uh, I'm still pushing myself uh, to to be as pan liberation uh, as possible. Awesome, Cam. Do you have anything to add or follow up before I ask the next question? Uh, no, it just it, uh, it did uh, spark another thought in me in talking about um, particular res reservations. And I think this is theology as a whole. Um, I think this is the uh, a reservation that we need to be um, aware of and doing theology is making sure that we are reading with reading those who disagree with us that we're reading those who would challenge our blind spots that we're reading those who are um, going to challenge us intellectually and then challenge our, our cultural convictions and so um, one of my my uh, hopes would be to see more of the evangelical community and more of this uh, black liberation community cross-referencing one another, reading one another, citing one another, and um, you know, to, to really engage one another I think would be great and uh, to make sure that we're not uh, really just uh, um, holding one another off with a, 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 a arm's length that we're engaging and having conversations and moving past that um, I think it's more important that we are talking with one another in a personal manner, uh, and I, I, you know, my hope is that uh, Willie and I would continue conversations past this um, Google Hangout because it's important for us to be in dialogue, uh, read, but uh, let, let's do life together. Um, it's, it's very easy to vilify somebody who we never met, who we never shaken hands with, and gone out to lunch with, and so um, I would I would encourage that um, as a pursuit for uh, theology as a whole. Um, for this pursuit of 
knowledge and truth that we need to uh, really start with fellowship and we need to start um, with this question in mind. What do I owe those who I disagree with? Uh, and we owe them a lot. Yeah, I like Amen. That. And that's what Courageous Conversations is all about. It's all about making connections and talking um, in a space for people who may disagree to have these conversations that are necessary um, because Twitter and Facebook uh, make it easy to argue without, you know, really critically thinking or engaging people or remembering that people are people. Mm -hmm. um, and we just kind of like to throw out our comments without doing it the old school way and having face-to-face -face conversations. Um, we're about to wrap this up, but for I'm going to give you guys the last word. What books would you recommend? What are your last words for our listeners? If you were talking to someone for a cam, what would you um, like? What would be some suggestions that you would like? Book suggestions for Willie and Willie, what book suggestions would you have for Cam? And any last words in your Twitter handles and how people can get in contact with you? Whoever wants to go first. Go ahead, Cam. Oh, um, so you can follow me at Cam Triggs, uh, and I'm willing to engage with anybody that way. Um, Book recommendations. Uh, I, I I say number one, if you if you really want a good understanding of uh, really the the foundation, um, anything by James Cone from uh, his uh, his earlier works to now, you can kind of see the evolution. Um, there's a a great Black Liberation theo theology reader that has contributions from authors um, that really shows the evolution and contributions from different authors that I would recommend. Two volumes, um, some great writings in there. Uh, from James Cone, from Cornell West, I would recommend those. Um, I would recommend the, the Cornell West reader uh, for uh, somebody to really begin to get into what does this look like um, as a, a practitioner. I think Cornell West um, or even Michael Eric Dyson are practitioners who are also academic intellectuals that would really uh, whet somebody's appetite for learning about um, this theological movement. Uh, and then I, I would recommend from uh, those who may be uh, conservative, um, Bruce Fields wrote three crucial questions for black liberation theology. Bruce L. Fields and then Anthony Bradley wrote one um, called uh, Liberating Black Theology that are uh, pretty decent reads. Uh, Anthony Bradley's uh, um, is a fair critique, and I think it, 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 it really embodies a lot of, I think he gives a fair articulation. Bruce Fields is a good evaluation, and I feel like his his book challenges the evangelical product of theology more so, utilizing Black Liberation theology. And so, I would recommend those two books um, in addition to the ones I already mentioned. Uh, awesome. Uh, you can follow me uh, on on Twitter at at Willie Francois three, the number three. Uh, so that's at Willie Francois three uh, on Twitter. Um, I in in terms of books, uh, all those suggestions are great uh, that that Cam gave. I guess I would add uh, a couple just just for the sake of adding uh, that uh, Making a Way Out of No Way by Monica Coleman, a great book. Uh, Stand Your Ground by Kelly Brown Douglas, great book. Uh, also by Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, 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 Sexuality in the Black Church, 
uh, is a great ver uh, great book uh, to lead a congregation do through uh, thinking about some very very critical issues about sexuality uh, not uh, sexuality in general sexuality as a whole great book uh, and a strong womanist ethic uh, undergirding that uh, you know, God the Oppressed, uh, also a, a foundational text for doing this work. Uh, Jonathan Walton's uh, Watch This, uh, The Ethics and Aesthetics of uh, Televangelism. He does some great work there. Uh, Karen Baker Fletcher's um, uh, My Sister, My Brother, uh, great piece. Uh, Victor Anderson's uh, Creative Exchange or his Beyond Ontological Blackness. Um, yeah, I think that... Uh, that, that, that's a good place to start. Awesome. Well, I think this has been a great conversation and a great part one uh, for Courageous Conversations. I'm excited for people to hear it, and I thank both of you um, gentlemen. Y'all have um, led a phenomenal conversation, and I'm encouraged and blessed by it, and I think our listeners will be as well. Thank you so much. Man, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it